0: Season four? What is this?
1: Wow. Amazing. Is that really right? Yeah. Hard to believe, Jeffrey. Hard to believe. We've made it this long. They haven't canceled us yet.
0: <laughs> that's right.
1: There's no one to cancel us, but that's okay.
0: I think they might. We might have.
1: <laughs> Maybe we, actually, we might have been canceled several times. We just don't canceled. know. canceled. <laughs> am
0: not exactly sure. We just don't actually know. <laughs> I'm on Twitter now, so like it may be that I was canceled. We should check our
1: social media. We yeah. should check like, hashtag Cheap Talk and see what people have been complaining yeah. about.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Capello. I'm an associate professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague and chair of the Department of Government at William & Mary, Marcus Holmes. Marcus, congratulations. This is your first podcast since officially becoming chair of the department. Congratulations on being the only one willing to take this position, I think. Yes. It Um, It
1: was a vote. It was very close. Very close. <laughs> I, I don't understand what the problem is. I, I don't understand why no one wants to do this. And I, I say this as my hair is disheveled and I'm getting emails left and right. And, you know, but, uh, it's, it's been great. But I should say, actually, we both have new titles, right? And so congratulations to you as well. You have a new title. What is your new title, Jeffrey?
0: I'm, I'm an associate professor now. And, uh, Fantastic. Whereas, yes, I used to, and you are a full professor now. So Correct. That's yeah. very exciting. Um, I feel like, you know, despite the podcast... Our careers have not stagnated the way you might have you might have thought.
1: You might by listening to this, you might you might have thought maybe we had stalled a long time ago.
0: Right? Everyone said the podcast is the death knell for your career, but it turns exactly. out we, we still got promoted, so it's okay. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Well, did you have a celebratory summer?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I did. I had a good summer. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of travel with the family and just kind of taking a little breather. I'm on leave this this year this academic year and explain for the audience what that what, it, what does that mean leave what, what does that mean basically means i'm not teaching this this academic year i'm still doing research or, or at least in theory i'm doing research well and you also you don't want to start too quickly you got to ease into, you got to ease into you know, yeah. yeah so it was it was a good summer and uh but it's good to be back and it you know we had a had a long hiatus there and so it's nice to be joining you for season four of the pod. So uh, welcome right. back, Marcus. Welcome, welcome back, and welcome back to our
1: listeners. Welcome to our new listeners, uh, the ones that are forced to listen to this and the ones that choose to listen to this under their own volition. Uh, it's, great to, it's great to be back.
0: And I, I want to hear more about your summer. In fact, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about your summer travels because they have they have something to say about international security. Maybe you learned a couple of things you can, you can share with us. I know you were jetting around Japan, I think you mm-hmm. you went to Japan at one point? Was this about baseball? Remind me.
1: Yes. Okay. Thank you, Jeffrey. Yes, this was about baseball. So, uh, for those of us that, uh, for those of you that do not know, we recently at William and Mary received a grant from the U.S. Embassy uh, in Tokyo to celebrate and study 150 years uh, of baseball diplomacy between the U.S. and Japan. And so, as part of that uh, project, we're doing a number of, of different things. We have a symposium at William and Mary uh, next month. We're bringing together. Former players, former coaches, scholars of baseball diplomacy, scholars of of some of the Japanese uh, players in particular. Uh, We're also bringing a team from Williamsburg to Japan next summer. And so the purpose of this trip uh, this summer was really to sort of start making some relationships with the folks that we're going to be working with on the Japanese side. We met with the embassy uh, officials Uh, We talked about, you know, logistics and how everything's going to work and all that kind of thing. And it was, I I, got to tell you, it was a, it was a fantastic trip for a number of different reasons. First of all, Japanese culture is one I I completely adore. It's, I think it's, I think it's phenomenal. The food, you know, everything is, is, is just so great. Um, But also, you know, I was there at a time where, you know, people were, were sort of getting ready for uh, some big announcements, right? And so one of the announcements that, That was made was that there was going to be this summit uh, at Camp David, uh, sort of you know led by by the United States and the Biden administration, bringing together Japan uh, and South Korea as part of this so called trilateral alliance. And you know you might think, you know, some people might say, well, what you know, Japan and South Korea, like that seems like a natural. Uh, kind of, of pairing, given that you have, you know, China in the region, which, which a lot of states kind of want to, you know, balance against or deter. You have North Korea, which is a common threat. But actually, you know, South Korea and J- Japan have a long history of of... You know lots of different grievances uh, and and to see them kind of come together under the auspices of this this trilateral alliance was was pretty noteworthy and, and pretty exciting for those of us that you know study you know the the, the sort of region but also just international security more more broadly because I think it actually is is pretty meaningful right so I was there for baseball, but I also you know sort of was, was there in the midst of, of what was happening with this, you know, summit that was about to, to occur. And so actually I wanted to ask you, Jeff, uh, if you had any impressions of uh, the trilateral uh, alliance itself, or maybe more interestingly, sort of what, what this means for, for China, because I heard a lot of sort of policy analysts talking about how, you know, on the one hand, it's great that the United States is, is sort of, you know, affirming these, these connections and affirming this alliance. And there was a fairly strong statement um, about security and we're going to, you know, protect one another, On the other hand, China... Clearly doesn't like when you know countries, particularly in the United States, works in this you know sort of like trilateral way uh, against it. You know, so even even if you know China is not necessarily you know antagonized or feels threatened by this alliance, I think it's fair to say at the very least they probably didn't love the optics of seeing uh, this take place at, at Camp David. So I'm just curious, what your impressions of the the summit or the the alliance is, and particularly with respect to what this might mean for our,
0: our relationship. Uh, with china moving forward i I found this great op ed that was written for the hill oh i 've heard of that yeah it 's a like a a newsletter distributed uh, on capitol hill <laughs> but it's it 's by somebody named nicholas wheeler and and a co author and and this this op ed I think is a good job kind of and we'll we'll put a link in the show notes the the co author is um is Professor Holmes. I think this op ed does a good job kind of talking about the why this is an important alliance generally and kind of lays lays the groundwork for that discussion. The big issue here for me is less China. I mean, obviously, China looms, right? But is more trying to get Japan and South Korea to work together. And this is a, a continual challenge of US administrations going back a long ways. We have a kind of legacy of conflict between these two countries and mistrust, distrust, mistrust, or just dis- one of those. Actually, in this case, it might be both. Okay. Yeah, I don't really know the difference between those, but maybe we can get into that at some point. <laughs> Save that for a later pod. Anyway, these these countries you know, haven't trusted each other over the years, and that has caused all kinds of complications for U.S. policy in the region. It means that it's harder to work closely with South Korea against North Korea because Japan gets annoyed if the U.S. is it just seems to be showing too much attention to South Korea and vice versa, and so it's it's really created a challenge for this U.S. pivot to the to the Asia Pacific that we've been trying to implement for years and years um, of shifting our foreign policy attention to this to this region. So obviously, China is the impetus for this, right? And and it is the signaling importance of this is making clear that we have a united front against Chinese. Uh, I don't know if aggression is the right word, but like an aggressive stance by China in the region. So the signaling thing is really important there. But I think the real story here is getting Japanese and South Korean leaders to kind of stand next to each other and commit to working together to address a variety of security challenges in the region.
1: Right. I totally agree. And actually, this is... uh one of the research projects that I've been sort of playing around with, and I think I'm going to pursue now, uh, given, given what happened in, in, uh, Camp David is just asking the question of like, how this, how this happened, like how this came to be? Cause you're right. You know, the Japan, you know, South Korea relationship has been very fragile, which is, you know, frustrated us attempts at, at kind of like reaffirming this, this alliance. But in the last year and a half or so, there's been, it seems to me like tremendous, uh, progress, particularly at the leadership level of Japan and South Korea. And I, I kind of want to get into, uh, to the extent that we can gain knowledge about this is like, what were the, um, you know, the attempts to, to sort of b- build a little bit of reconciliation? What were the attempts to build trust between these two leaders that then allowed them to be in a position where they would be you know, comfortable, you know, sort of affirming this, this alliance? I think that's a really, really fascinating question. I thought where you were going to go with this, Jeffrey. Uh, it's not uh, where you ended up going, which is, which is a very valid point, but rather the the nuclear proliferation question, because one of the points that we make in the, uh, the article that you're referencing is that there's a, a, a sort of strong sentiment in, in South Korea um, to start pursuing their own you know, nuclear program. And so for somebody that studies nonproliferation and proliferation, I would think that uh, this would also be a major a major concern. Actually, one of the studies that we point to, um, and it's hard to know exactly if these figures are, are correct, but they said about three quarters of the South Korean public uh, support the idea of developing their own nuclear weapon.
0: Yeah, so I kind of skimmed your op-ed; I didn't really read it very, very very closely. But yeah, no, I, I, I encourage mean...
1: my students to do the same thing. So that's, <laughs> that's fine.
0: So both Japan and South Korea are kind of the front lines of. Potential nuclear proliferation in response to regional threats for South Korea—that's North Korea, right? But for both South Korea, bo- both South Korea and Japan—that's China—represents um, like a, a real threat to the long-term security of these of these countries. And so, a lot of what the U.S. has done over the last ten years in the region is designed to reassure Japan and South Korea of U.S. support and U.S. commitment to the region so as to reduce the pressure on those countries to pursue nuclear weapons and for many years south this, there are these polls of the South Korean population asking, should, should they get nuclear weapons? And uh, yeah, there's some very high number of South Korean public in these polls says, yes, we should get a nuclear weapon. And I mean, you can understand why, right? Here you have a, a kind of crazy nuclear power, North Korea right across the border, like very, very close to Seoul. And you can understand why um, the population would say that. But it's important to, when you speak about South Korean support for nuclear development, to distinguish between this kind of popular view as captured in polls and what South Korean leaders are careful to say, right? So it's not the same as saying that the South Korean leadership supports developing a nuclear weapon, right? That's a, a more complicated question. And that's why the U.S. Right. spends so much effort trying to reassure its allies in the region.
1: Right. And, and you know, I, the other point I wanted to make is that I, I think it's you, you and I both have, I think, fairly positive uh, views of of the trilateral alliance and, and what happened at, at Camp David. There is another side of the the story that I think some some analysts have pointed out, which is to say, in addition to um, having China not be particularly happy. Uh, about this arrangement if you're if you think you know china ultimately sort of has defensive intentions and they can be reassured you might think that this is not the way to do that and and actually dialogue with china uh that brings them in as opposed to sort of like sidelining them uh very publicly is is probably not the way to do that but the other thing that i read from somebody and unfortunately i can't remember who it was maybe we can dig it up and and post it uh and after the show has to do with the argument that a lot of this you know sort of came down to security um Defense uh, st- uh, stuff. And while that's all fine, if the emphasis is on sort of like, you know, building military you know, capabilities together, you know, there is a, a sense in which that in a region that's already, you know, uh, sort of on high alert a lot of the time that contributes to kind of an environment of seeing this as very much a problem that can be solved militarily. Um, and so I, I don't necessarily buy that, but I do see the point that a lot, of, if you do the readout of the, the Summit, a lot of it really was about, you know, sort of material capabilities and strengthening defenses and stuff like that. And I, I, I take the point that that focus uh, might indeed sort of you know, contribute to an atmosphere of, of insecurity for a lot of the players in the region. But overall, I think I think it was a it was a good summit. I'm glad that, that Biden had it. And I think it's a win for the United States.
0: But that's the kind of stuff that sends a message to right? like you, you, you just go and you say things and they don't come with real commitments. Then that's cheap talk. And, you know, wh- we, we know something about that. Right. Like, why? Why? Why should anyone take that seriously? So I think like the, what made the summit successful from my perspective is that it was concrete in terms of it's we talk about real capabilities and that's the way you send a message to a potential adversary. Now, you know, this idea that this kind of antagonizes China and increases the risk of conflict. I take that point. I think this is a real, a real argument, but we have tried the strategy of not antagonizing China, of uh, opening lines of communication, and it hasn't appeared to reduce the reduce the risk of aggression in the in the region from China, right? So we have um, we are clearly in a more adversarial phase with China now than we we had been. But I think it, it's not as if the there weren't efforts to try to be open lines of communication and make sure everyone's communicating and talking and and being on the same page. And and I don't think those policy initiatives, like dating from the Clinton years have been particularly successful in creating China as a partner rather than as a future adversary.
1: Right. I think that's fair. I think it's fair to say that the the other option was not a quadrilateral, quadrilateral, quadratic, quadratic alliance. That's probably wrong. Quadrilateral, quadrilateral alliance with China in it.
0: Four party, four party. Four party
1: the four party is much simpler yeah um, i don 't think it was an option between three parties and four parties because uh, uh, they would have chosen the four parties, right, so I think you're right um, in this it 's not like the United States has not been trying to engage with with China and it was with some successes, but clearly you know not not the success that I think a lot of us would have would have hoped for but can we can we so it's, I was in Japan, but I was also in another country. Um, that was fairly close to Japan, sort of regionally, in terms of we think about it in terms of uh, international relations, sort of the Asia-Pacific, broadly speaking. Uh, and I actually did not go from Japan to Australia, which would have made some sense. I came back home first uh, and was in Australia on a separate trip, which meant lots of flying, uh, lots of
0: red-eye flights and all More that. More miles, Marcus. That's what More it's all miles. about. Well, yeah, exactly. This
1: was a very different uh, topic. I attended a workshop uh, at... Australian National University in Canberra, uh, which I had never been to before. It's a lovely, it's small, small capital city, but also but very nice and water and, yeah. and everything. Um, nice. And the idea for this conference was to think about the use of artificial intelligence uh, in resort to force decision making, both sort of conventional forces, but also uh, and mostly we talked about nuclear um, decision making.
0: And when I think nuclear decision making, making I think Marcus Holmes. Yes, exactly so- right.
1: And, and also, you should think when you think artificial intelligence, you think Marcus <laughs> so Holmes. Right. So You're I was building a brand. I, a, I love it. I love it. <laughs> I was I was a great person to bring to this because I know lots about it, all these topics. <laughs> uh, but it, but it was it was actually like really fascinating. And, and so I we, we talked about lots of different things, and we don't have time to get into to all of this. But you know, I just want to highlight a couple of, of observations that I had, and then run a couple ideas by you, Jeffrey. Okay. Um, the first observation was that. The the political scientists, and there was mostly political scientists, there were a couple of sort of computer science, um, artificial intelligence kind of programmers and things like that. But for the, the political scientists, I would say were um, incredibly uh, uh, pessimistic about the role of artificial intelligence in helping decision makers when it comes to the, the use of force, right? Um, and they were pessimistic for all kinds of reasons. But I think... You know what? You can kind of boil them down to uh, you know a couple of different sort of categories. One is that artificial intelligence, because it's not you know sort of human by by definition, so artificial intelligence is not human intelligence. Lacks the you know sort of human. Uh, well, obviously it lacks human, but it lacks like emotion. It lacks reason. It lacks experience. It, it lacks uh, judgment in the way that we sort of think about it, which is bringing all of your uh, prior experiences to the table and making a decision so that's kind of one set of, of arguments of why they're pessimistic also all the well-known flaws uh with something like if you think chat gpt you know the, the 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 a lot of people are pointing out you know how it's it shows uh you know significant bias it can be racist uh there's these stories of you know chat gpt telling people to commit suicide like all, all kinds of like really sort of awful stuff that that is associated with or has been associated with some For of the writing attention. really
0: bad limericks
1: really writing bad, bad limericks, limericks you yeah. know helping students cheat on their papers sure. you know, all, all kinds of all kinds of things um, and so the, the overall tone and then there, there were some people there that were like i think really negative and, and sort of thought like the, the, the genie's out of the bottle you know we're all basically just you know really really screwed to be honest with you like it's you can't you can't put the cork back on the the thing like we're just we're, we're in no no man's land no one knows what's going to happen but it doesn't it doesn't look good and I, the, the the short pieces that we had to write. These weren't full papers, but they were just kind of like ten page kind of thought thought pieces. Uh, my my co-author and I Nicholas Wheeler who you you mentioned we we wrote something that actually uh turned out to be the most optimistic <laughs> take of this whole and I, we didn't think we were doing that we actually thought we were were sort of taking a middle ground uh view but our take was viewed as incredibly optimistic and i just want to run by you the general thought that we had uh and see if you think it's just you know crazy or or you think that there's some some merit to it our argument was that when it comes to decision making about the use of force the, the the benefit of artificial intelligence is that it has this and i 'm sort of thinking about things, you know, technology like machine learning and, and things like that, and including that in artificial intelligence has the ability to look at vastly more data than the human being can right and the benefit of that is being able to compare the, the data that you see sort of on the ground uh, in the moment to you know, historical historical trends right. So so I'm thinking about an example like let's say the Able Archer in 1983 this NATO exercise where the Soviets you know saw NATO you know mobilizing and there was a moment in which they thought maybe this was this was real. If you run that back in an environment where you have artificial intelligence and and machine learning you could imagine a situation where the the computer would be able to tell you actually what you're seeing on the ground might look scary but it actually resembles a lot of actions that have been taken previously by NATO, and, and it could show exactly what those are, which were all defensive in nature because they were just, you know, they are exercises. They weren't actually mobilization for offensive uh, action. They were just good old, you know, exercises to be ready in case they have to do something. And so the computer being able to look at all that data and make sense of it and see the patterns that the human being would have a very hard time doing would be able to say, our assessment is that this is likely, Uh, Another example of an exercise and not an offensive intent or at the very least give us some probabilistic, you know, maybe it's like 60 40 defense versus versus offense. So that's that's one area that we thought um, AI might actually provide like a beneficial kind of like make war less likely. Uh, type of thing than than what uh, some of the other papers were doing, and then the other one was just simply thinking through different scenarios. You know, it's it's very difficult, I think, for human beings with cognitive limitations to kind of think beyond maybe two or three different scenarios at a time. But again, here the computer can can like walk the the protagonist, walk the decision maker through a bunch of different potential scenarios. Like, so for example, have you thought that maybe this was uh, a military exercise and not an offensive? Uh, attack if it was an offensive attack, would you expect the following things to to be true here and then show the, the decision maker like actually these things kind of seem a little weird right like why would why would they be you know sort of signaling you know just to, to use an example like saying we're going to do this uh before they did it if it was a real attack right so in other words, kind of take a look at the data in a sort of unemotional kind of flat cognition. Uh, type of way in order to walk the decision maker through potential scenarios just to get them thinking about things that they might might not be thinking we presented these two or i presented these two ideas and and, and uh, even those two which i didn't think were, were all that controversial a lot of the political scientists in the room thought no. Nope, Actually, the AI, because it lacks all of this uh, judgment and has these built-in biases and it has all these problems that we've been talking about, you're not going to be able to rely on it. And if anything, it's going to contribute to misperceptions. It's going to contribute to errors. And it's probably going to lead to worse outcomes than if we didn't have it a- at all. I'm not sure what you make of it. I just kept on thinking back to, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis. If we had AI at the time, would it would it have helped at all? And I, I came to the conclusion that it's likely that possibly the AI would have actually been somewhat Beneficial, so I don't know, Jeff. I, is, is any of this sound uh, sane to you, or is it is it crazy?
0: Yeah, no, I, I I'm uh, kind of on your side here. I think there's there's real promise when it comes to AI as an aid to decision making. Where you get a lot of pushback is the decision to use force, right? So so right. what you're talking about isn't the AI making the decision to use force? No.
1: I think everybody agrees. We don't want AI nu- making nuclear decisions about, you know. Well,
0: not nuclear decisions, right? But like the AI right now today in Ukraine is making decisions about when to open fire on adversaries. Okay. Right. So th- this, this genie is out of the bottle. This is happening. And uh, we have had automated weapon systems for a long time. And for a while, we've had kind of human in the loop systems where there's somebody there to like say, okay, go ahead and shoot when the when the drone wants to shoot but we also now have autonomous systems that are making its own decision about who is an adversary and who's not and these are deployed so like this is this is already happening so not at the level of like strategic nuclear weapons yet but definitely at the level of uh you know should i open fire on this tank that i see across right. the battlefield and you know there's actually quite a lot of research on on both sides of this question and like the moral issues associated with giving up the decision to f- open fire to a computer but the moral issues in my mind are not clear which direction they point in right so you know on one on the one hand it's very hard for us as human beings to kind of delegate the responsibility to use deadly force to a computer that seems kind of wrong on the one hand but on the other hand the computer might make a lot better decisions than than people and if you just look at like Self-driving cars versus humans driving cars. It's easy to see how if a, a computer could do a much better job than a human being in a lot of situations, right? Maybe not all situations, and maybe that tech isn't ready. But in the future, it's hard to see how that couldn't be uh, a better option for humanity to have the computers drive because they don't fall asleep, they're not texting, um, they're not drinking and driving, etc. Right? And you can imagine right. a similar thing on the on in war. Pulling a trigger takes a substantial toll on individuals, on human beings, a substantial psychological toll. And if you are responsible for the psychological well-being of your military forces, then having computers doing that um, has a lot of benefits. And so there there are a lot of reasons to kind of on on both sides uh, of this question. When you kick it up a notch to, like, national level nuclear weapons decision making, I don't think there's anybody out there advocating for, like, Let's delegate the decision to use strategic nuclear weapons to the computer. But there is kind of a long story dating back to Thomas Schelling and the early days of the Cold War about using kind of automatic decision making as a strong nuclear deterrent. And there are some parallels from that literature to the discussion we're having today about delegating decision making to AI, because there's a sense in which computers may not be able to be held hostage, uh, may not be able to, May not be vulnerable to kind of decapitation attacks, taking out command and control, all these other things. And if you really want to deter a uh, command and control strike on your nuclear forces, one thing you can do is say, well, if we lose the command and control, all the nuclear weapons get fired, right? And that's a good deterrent um, to prevent folks from striking your command and control systems. So there, there are actually quite uh, complicated um, discussions about all of this. Um, when it comes to kind of the national decision-making level. But more generally, what I hear you talking about is this this idea that uh, machine learning, AI can be helpful in human decision-making, informed policy generally. And that's a story that we've been trying to tell for a while. And in fact, um, organizations like, like IARPA, the um, Intelligence Research Projects Agency, a, a kind of grant-making agency in the intelligence community, has put a lot of effort into figuring out what's the best way to integrate machine learning tools, AI tools, into kind of human analysis an analysis an of what's going on in the world? And I have some work on this. So it talks about how you can use machine learning tools to assess proliferation risk. And the idea here is not to replace human decision-making in any way, but to help human beings overcome cognitive biases that prevent them from making the right decisions in the heat of the moment, as I think what you're talking about, right? Leading the the decision maker through a set of questions, you know, could it be this other thing? Here's the evidence on that on that side. Could it be this other thing? Because human beings have a hard time doing that. Our puny human brains are not set up to uh, make good decisions under pressure. And so having a helpful aid there um, seems like a good idea. And so it, it's not necessarily a question of, do we replace human decision-making with computers? Because I don't think anybody's advocating for that. It's how best do we create Human computer teams that can create better outcomes than we would get from using just humans or just computers alone.
1: Totally agree. I mean, and, and the other thing is, you know, and some of the people in the in the in the workshop would push back and they would said, you know, well, okay, you know, AI might not have cognitive bias, but it definitely has bias, and and I think that's true. I mean, we have seen yep. examples of ChatGPT, for example, being being biased. But it, I'm always struck by by those types of arguments because you know it's not we 're not really comparing anything to perfect right we 're sort of trying to minimize the amount of of bias right and then being aware of the bias so like once you 're aware that ChatGPT GPT has this bias, you can be on the lookout for it right so it's it 's like one of those things where it 's like the existence of the bias is is one thing, but like what that actually means in terms of what, how the decision maker uses the tool it doesn 't seem to me like those two things follow you know uh, correctly because you can choose to use the tool any way you like. Um, and and knowing about how it might be biased, I think is is actually quite helpful. When I use ChatGPT, and I, I've i used it on, on various things, various projects, I now look for. In fact, what you're but, saying right now
0: is written by ChatGPT. Well, most of
1: most of this, yeah. I, I, when I had, I, I asked, It's funny if you ask it to to give you a script for a podcast. Yeah. Called Cheap Talk. It's really interesting <laughs> what it comes up with. um, but you know, I I am now aware that that bias uh, exists in the in ChatGPT, and I look for it, and I try to try to spot it, and 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 see you know how I can get around it. So I I often think that you know just because something has a limitation doesn't necessarily mean that we throw it out. It's just being aware of that limitation can actually be be empowering and help you.
0: Right. But the the more general point problem here though is that people sometimes aren't willing to look under the hood and see what's going on with the, the AI or the computer assist, right? And so if you take what the AI is saying as objective, right. then then you're making a mistake. And we have all kinds of uh, evidence of this from the world of, of data science and ethics and data science where algorithms have kind of baked in biases because of the data sets they're built on. And... We don't always see those, and sometimes the algorithms are proprietary. Sometimes the math is just too complicated to understand what's happening under the hood. Nobody knows what's going on under these large lang- under the hood of these large language models like GPT. It's impossible to figure out, right? So, so the, they're based on these sets, but in a way that we can't kind of go back and figure out where the bias is. So it can be really tricky if, if you have a score that uh, determines whether. Uh, you're a teacher that gets promoted or that gets to stay on and your score is based on some neural network and you don't understand where that information comes from. that may well be just very biased data and is if the school district is going to just take that as gospel, then we have a problem right um so I think there is reason to be worried about bias built into machine learning algorithms generally and AI in particular but if, if we set up the AI in such a way that it's Talking the human through a decision making process rather than giving the human like a number and being like, "Okay, here you go. Uh, I think you can kind of deal with some of those challenges in a in a better way. I was
1: uh, floored at the at the workshop to learn from the experts who, who study artificial intelligence when, when they made a, a point, basically, which is very similar to what you're saying, which is there's, a, there's this idea out there, I think, that a lot of people have that machine learning and AI can be sort of transparent in the sense – and what they mean by that, I think, usually is – you can like kind of look under the hood and see what it's doing, and it's like, oh, okay, I see why ChatGPT, you know, told me to do this racist thing because it was like, you know, looking at this particular data, and we can like change that so it won't look at that data anymore, and now it'll it'll be. But actually, that's not how it works, and and so it's the transparency bit um, becomes really difficult because you you cannot even the experts who who program these things can't go back and retroactively say this is why ChatGPT told you to do right. what it what it said, which is which is which is in a way it's it makes sense given if you have some understanding of kind of how these 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 models work but on the other hand it's just completely it blows your mind because you're like wait a second they really did create a tool that now is sort of just out there doing its thing that you cannot go back and and understand why it's doing the thing that it's that's doing that that part i i grant uh, to the skeptics and to the pessimists is a, is a bit scary because it does raise this question of like how you build trust in a tool like that. Like how do I how can I trust Chat GPT? How can it win me over and show me that it has my best interest at heart or something like that? If it can't even explain why it's doing what it's doing,
0: right? And I mean, when, when even when you're designing much less complex AI kind of or machine learning tools to help decision making, it's incumbent upon whoever's designing those tools to show that the output makes sense, right? And so when I had this project looking at proliferation risk. One of the one of the things I did with it was I was like, all right, like imagine it's 1965. Here's the data set. Which countries do you, computer, think are going to be most at risk of proliferation? And then you hand those to human experts and say, are these reasonable guesses? And if they are, then you know maybe you have slightly more confidence that the tool is doing what it's supposed to do, be doing and not just kind of making stuff up. Yeah. But it's it's very hard to trust the computer, and we probably shouldn't. And I'll put a link in the in the show notes to a TED talk that goes into this um, in a kind of quick way about how you know these these data science algorithms can be have a lot of bias baked into them, and it's very hard sometimes for the users to see that. Who doesn't like a good TED talk? Exactly right. My my entire syllabus is is all, all TED talks these days. That's 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 how I roll. Hey, do you want to do a Ukraine check-in uh, real let's quick? Let's do a, like...
1: let's do a Ukraine check-in. We've we've been of yeah. around the world today, so we might as well you know kind of go to go to ukraine
0: yeah i mean i guess you know there's there's a counter offensive going on we, we we can talk about that there's sniping from the uh in the in the western media leaks from you know unnamed u.s sources kind of complaining about ukraine's performance in various ways and so there's there's a lot to dig into there but i thought maybe we could talk a little bit about know, a couple of conversations i had this summer so i i was uh had a few family events this summer, very exciting summer for me. And, you know, I always love to uh, hang out with family. But one of the fun things that happens when I'm at these family events is I'm like outside my normal William and Mary bubble or my foreign policy bubble, maybe is a better way of saying it. Right. So like among the foreign policy establishment, right, like there is a very homogeneous set of views when it comes to U.S. support for Ukraine. Um, and kind of, you know, there's there's nobody in a prominent foreign policy position kind of standing up and saying we should pull off, pull our support for Ukraine. That 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 conversation isn't really happening. Right. But in my family gatherings, there's some there's some people who are making an argument that uh, maybe the U.S. shouldn't be supporting Ukraine in in, in the way they are. Okay. And I th- I thought I could kind of like talk through a few of the arguments I heard this summer, and maybe we can see what we think of them. I think there were kind of three flavors of argument that I was getting that I wanted to talk about. Okay. And I think all of these are kind of coming from a good place, right? There there are a whole set of bad faith arguments out there, uh, fueled by Russian misinformation or whatever, that I'm not going to get into, right? But but these, I think, are coming from a, a place of, you know, wanting what's best for people in the world. So I thought the first one I wanted to talk about is is the argument from pacifism. And this is the idea that Basically, what the U.S. is doing in in its support for Ukraine in this war is extending a war that would be over otherwise, that if the U.S. hadn't, didn't provide support to Ukraine, Russia would be kind of in control of this country, or at least we'd be in a better position to end the war um, on Russia's terms, presumably, and that this would be good for the people of Ukraine who are suffering through a conflict that's having a real pretty horrible human toll. People are being killed and displaced, and it's just, you know, it's bad to be in, in a war. And so, you know, I think you hear versions of this argument that, you know, we're, we're extending a war and that in and of itself is kind of immoral in a way. My response to this is that that's fine, except that these kinds of international conflicts are what we would call in political science, a iterated strategic game. This is a game that we play over and over and all the sides get a turn, get a decision-making turn. So it's not as if if the U.S. just pulled support for Ukraine and somehow Russia was able to then end the war because Ukraine was out of artillery ammunition or something. As if, like, the world stops there. It doesn't. All the players see what happened, and they learn, and then they play again. And the problem is that by pulling support for Ukraine or not offering support in the first place, which I think is a version of this argument, you send a strong signal to, the, uh, to Russia that they can get away with whatever they want. And uh, that leads to further aggression in the future. So if your goal is to stop war, which I think is a noble goal, then it's uh, not at all clear to me that the best way to do that is to quickly end this war on Russian terms. In fact, I would say that's not the way to do it, right? That sending a signal of strength is a better way to do it and a signal of standing by our allies. There's also kind of a paternalistic piece of this that's unpleasant Right. That like, oh, we know better what's right, what's good for the people of Ukraine who've decided to fight that that we're going to say, well, you made the wrong decision there. And what you ought to have said said is we should surrender um, and we're going to help you to make that decision. And that's just that just seems kind of wrong.
1: I, I don't I don't like the argument, the pacifism argument either. Uh, and I mean, I think you actually hit the nail on the head. And, and we have an example of this, right? The whole Argument for what the Obama administration did wrong in 2014 was that they did not support Ukraine when Russia, you know, Vladimir Putin takes over Crimea. The lesson, the lesson there is not that that prevents war from happening. The the lesson there is that Putin gets emboldened and realizes, well, no one's going to stop me, so so why not? So if so, we allow him to take over Ukraine, uh, Crimea, and then we don't do anything. We allow him to take over Ukraine and don't do anything. I think you're exactly right. I think the message he's getting is. I can continue to to do this uh, if nobody's going to stop me. And I think it's very likely uh, that that probably would would be the next move. Like you, you had to put a stop to this uh, not because you like war, but precisely because you don't like war. You don't want exactly. to see you know the Eastern Europe be taken over by, by Russia. I think it's also the case that by upholding international uh, – you, know, you call them liberal sort of uh, rules and uh, law uh, is important for pacifism, right? Yeah, the idea of of sovereignty, the idea of you know not invading another country's borders, uh, for even if they had good reason, which they didn't, but but for especially for these like flimsy reasons, uh, is another way to prevent war from happening. And we've seen in Europe over the course of the 20th century the importance of having that liberal order created and those rules followed, uh, precisely because that is arguably what prevents war from happening. So, it's it's I'm sympathetic to the to the idea that. By providing Ukraine with with weapons and training and all this kind of stuff, that the war is, is going to be prolonged, and they're are likely, you know, in the short term anyway, because of that decision, will be more more death. But I think you're you're right. You can't take just that short term view, and you have to think it broad, more broadly about the the international system, what message that sends to aggressive actors, uh, you know, not, at least in internationally. Syria also call them like you know, sort of non status quo actors, the actors are not satisfied with the current situation. The signal is we well, don't like the situation that you're in. You can go. Improve it by invading another country. I don't think that's what we want.
0: There's also like a facts on the ground problem with this, with this argument. And um, I think this, this plagues many of the arguments against U.S. support. And, th- and this is a kind of assumption that if the U.S. pulled support, Ukraine would fold and Russia would take over and i I'm not sure that's that's true at all and and there you know maybe the fastest path to ending this war is more support for ukraine right, and that gets us out of this war even quicker um, by allowing Ukraine to push russian forces out so i don't I, I don't know that that's even factually true even if you buy all the other pieces of the argument so so that that's one is the argument from pacifism. Another argument I heard was the argument from escalation, and I'm a little more sympathetic to this one um, and this is the idea that What the U.S. is doing in its support for Ukraine is risking a wider escalation of a war with Russia that could result in, you know, global thermonuclear war and, you know, everyone being, you know, the loss of all humanity. Um, And I think it's fair to say that it it, it would be better to pull support from Ukraine than to uh, have a strategic nuclear exchange with Russia, killing, you know, hundreds of millions of people, Right. Um, So I'm on board with not having a global thermonuclear holocaust. That said, I think this argument isn't great either, partly because we seem to be managing escalation effectively in the current situation. So this is maybe a stronger argument in the beginning of the war um, than it is now, where we're in a position where, you know, we kind of know that we can continue to provide artillery to Ukraine and it's not going to result, or at least it hasn't resulted yet, in um, Russia escalating this war beyond the borders of Ukraine, training maybe it seems like something you could you could get away with right The Biden administration, I think has done an excellent job kind of managing the escalation ladder here effectively and making sure that u s moves don 't push Russia to do something that widens the war or increases dramatically the risk of nuclear exchange you 've run into the same problem here with as with the pacifism argument that this, the fact that this is a strategic game means that if we pull our support, it risks rewarding escalation by Putin, right? Making Putin think that escalating will mean he will win, and therefore encouraging more escalation. And so the best way to kind of say we don't want any more escalation is to hold the line and can, and not appearing to and not appear to cave to escalatory behavior on the part of the other side. So I, I think you kind of run into that same Logic in this argument and then and then the last one I wanted to, to mention is the argument from us interests and here you hear people say, well, really this this whole thing isn't in the best interest of the United States in the long term. take a big picture view um, that really what we don't want is an even more paranoid and desperate Russia, or a Russia where maybe wartime footing Has left Putin even more deeply entrenched in power than he was before. And so the upshot of lengthening this war with US support for Ukraine is ultimately going to be detrimental to US interests in the region or US national security kind of broadly. Again, I think this was maybe easier to argue earlier in the conflict because throughout things haven't seemed to go Russia's way, right? And in in kind of every conceivable way, Russia seems weaker than at the beginning of this conflict. And that ultimately, it's hard to argue, isn't in U.S. interests because here we have a country that is kind of a clear adversary of the United States. If I had to guess, I would say that Putin is domestically weaker because of the conflict. We had a near coup attempt, right? Not not a great one, maybe, but like, you know, that we weren't seeing a lot of that before. And bailing on Ukraine now, it it seems like it would send a really strong message to our NATO allies and other states that seems more likely to weaken U.S. standing in the world than strengthen our international position. So I have a hard time seeing the logic by which pulling support, maybe not giving support in the first place, you can make a, a strong argument for this, given the, the place we are in the world today that we've supported Ukraine throughout. And I think that was the right move. Given where we are today, I have a hard time seeing how pulling support is going to somehow increase U.S. national uh, interests in the long run.
1: You know, Jeff, I, I've met many of your family members uh, and they are lovely people, but I'm not too impressed with any of these arguments. You know, we started, I thought you were going to, you know, give me something profound. But I mean, I, you know, all of these, it seems to me, they all kind of run into a similar version of, of two different problems, right? One is the signaling problem. Like you're either like letting Putin just do whatever he wants because he's got nuclear weapons or because we want to, you know, end the war, this and that, which I think is bad for the United States. We don't want to send that message to Putin. And the other the other problem is that there's this idea that this is not somehow not in the U.S.'s uh, interest. I think having an Eastern Europe that is democratic and has you know provides this sort of like buffer from these authoritarian you know states like Russia and, and Western Europe is, is actually a very good thing. And the United States has very strong reasons to want to maintain that, uh, both security and economics. We don't talk about economics too often on this uh, podcast because neither of us really study economics. But th- th- this all started uh, way back when with a, a trade deal that was going to happen. And I'm talking like before 2014, a trade deal was going to happen between Ukraine and the EU that uh, Russia didn't like, right? So there were, there were strong reasons both security and economic to keep Ukraine in the sort of, you know, realm of democratic states in Eastern Europe that might get closer to Western Europe over time, ideologically, economically, and security-wise. I think that's all in in the U.S. interest. I think it's also in the interest for the United States to say that we're going to stand up for democracies and rule of law and sovereignty. Uh, I think that's perfectly uh, in keeping with what the U.S. strategic uh, vision is. I I don't want to live in an international system where uh, countries are just invading one another uh, left and right because they can and because the United States is not going to do anything about it. So, I mean, I, I... None of these arguments are, are very persuasive. Um, I, I think th- what you said at the beginning is that they come from a good place in the sense that no one likes war. Very few people like war. I'm sure your family members don't like war, and they're searching for a way uh, to to sort of think about how we get out of this. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. I would love to see some type of negotiated uh, settlement on the terms that the Ukrainians are willing to accept, uh, and not you know have this like sort of paternalistically like told to them. This is what you're going to do. I would love to see that. But you know, unfortunately, I don't think that's that's in the cards at the moment. And so your choices are not, you know, that and, and continuing the war. Your choices really, given what we've done already and given what Putin's actions have been, what would be the least detrimental uh in a in a bad situation to the international system and, and US leadership going forward? Um and I, I think you have to you have to stay the course, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I'm I you know I'm trying to uh cast these arguments and in, in the the best light I can, because I, you know people have strongly held views about uh, sure. about this and about kind of U.S. intervention generally, and I think the Ukraine war ties into some of that. This, some of this idea that the U.S. should be kind of just minding its own business and letting the rest of the world fend for itself. Right. I don't think that's a very strong argument either. I, I think it's great that the U.S. has been supporting Ukraine. I wish the U.S. was supporting Ukraine more in in some ways. Um, and I saw, I think yesterday uh, or today, um, Secretary of State Blinken is in in Kiev, uh, offering or pledging another billion dollars in aid, um, in a variety of ways. Um, and this is aid that's already been authorized. There's, there's a request for more money, um, currently sitting in Congress, which, you know, is tied up in the whole threatened government shutdown and who knows whether, what will come of that. Um, but I think, you know, it's important for Ukraine's prospects and the conflict that its allies, including the U S but also Western Europe generally, are clear that it will have the support of the West necessary to continue to prosecute this war and to stand up to Russian aggression. And that's an important message to be, to continue to send even as Congress kind of argues about what it's going to do because that's part of what's going to help get this war ended. If Putin thinks he can outlast the support for Ukraine then uh, that provides a lot of incentive for extending the war. And mm-hmm. so it's being consistent in our signaling about our support for Ukraine in this conflict is part of what will get both sides to the negotiating table.
1: Yeah. And I think the other thing that's important is, you know, there are, um, there, in, in international relations, in the way that you sort of approach foreign policy, there is oftentimes this sort of view that there's a continuum, right? There's folks who prefer Call it like restraint, right? Like we're not gonna we're not gonna go off and, and do these international adventures. We want to like restrain ourselves. We want to like let countries figure out their own problems and so on. And then sort of an interventionist uh, kind of other side of the, the spectrum, which is more willing to use force, put boots on the ground, even uh, for either humanitarian reasons or security reasons or, or whatever. And you know, sometimes people, uh, I think, wear a, a cap. They're like, you know, I'm an interventionist. I'm a restraint person. Whatever. Um, I think for a lot of people, though, you you got to take these things sort of like on a case by case basis, right? So uh, number one, like, what is the situation with with Russia and Ukraine? What is the current status? How did we get here? And compare that to other cases where you might feel very differently, like, you know, a lot of people that support uh, arming Ukraine now were very much against the Iraq war, for example, right? So it's, it's not like if you're interventionist here, you're necessarily interventionist there. It's more about sort of looking at the strategic environment and figuring out does it make sense to intervene in this particular case? And for what reason? And so um, I think you know th- th- here I'm 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 with you I'm very much you know willing to uh, keep up support for Ukraine. That doesn't mean that in a future conflict I would necessarily be. It all depends on sort of the characteristics of that conflict uh, and what we can what the U.S. seeks to gain by intervening uh, in it.
0: Marks, maybe we should leave it there.
1: I think we we covered a lot of territory. We had baseball, you know, Japan, Australia, Ukraine, AI, ChatGPT. Your, your family, picnics, summer.
0: <laughs> picnics, great. Right? Yeah, it's great. Uh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, we covered a lot of ground. Thanks, everyone, for, for joining us for the start of what's going to be a great season four of this podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us and ask a question, let us know where Professor Holmes made a mistake. Uh, you can reach us at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com, or you can leave a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk. Uh, those are always great. Just remember, uh, it's a family podcast, so watch the language. in those. we've, we've run into that problem in the past. Yeah, we have. This is not the chance for you to vent about your grade to Professor Holmes. Um, although those are kind of those are kind of amusing when we get them. Um, so please send us your feedback. Um, thanks so much, Marcus. We'll, we'll see everybody next time.
1: I look forward to seeing you next time. Oh, I got to tell you today, Jeff. Are we recording? This is great. So I my Government 204 class, so we're going over the syllabus, the expectations, whatever. And I, I say, you got to listen to our podcast. I mean, not got to listen. They're going to want to listen once they hear the, this episode. But they're going to, you know, you have to listen to the podcast. And <clears throat> in order to make it easy for them to, to subscribe, uh, I showed them the Spotify page that they should go to. And a very astute observer in the class said, is that a BlackBerry in the, in the logo? And I said, it is. And they said, "What is that all about?" And I was like, "Well, you're, you're going to have to you're going to have to stay tuned or or listen to some of the uh, episodes to to." You got to start it.
0: at episode one to get the you full arc of the one. story. Yeah, but it,
1: but it occurs to me that for the the new listener, the, the the reference is just completely it makes no sense. I mean, why would anybody why why is there a BlackBerry next to like a globe? Like it's it's like an it's like an inside joke at this point. You know, it's like you have to have some inside knowledge to to know what's going on.
0: I think it works on multiple levels, right? Because it's it's a it's a cheap phone. For, for, <laughs> cheap, for cheap talk right you talk on a phone or used to years ago cheap cheap talk and then there's like the globe is like the international angle and i i i, I think it makes sense
1: you know professor Kaplow, i could not have planned it better today we're going through the syllabus i say you have to listen to our podcast called cheap talk and a student raised her hand and said what what's with the name why is it called cheap talk and i said I'm going to tell you in about 30 seconds. And then we jumped right into, you know, realism and, and, and the problem with signaling and costly signaling and cheap talk. It was, it was phenomenal. Excellent. Was See, great.
0: that's what this is. We're, we it serves a pedagogical purpose. So everyone who tells me that I'm wasting my time with this and that the ad revenue doesn't make up for the effort I'm putting in th- This is the answer yet. This is the answer, right? That we're at right. least we're helping two students in your class better right. understand some concept.
1: Yeah, Exactly. I I loved it. It was a great it was a great day to to talk about the pod.